All right, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 12. And we are continuing our series, the Gospel of John, after a three-part summary by Pastor Enro in chapters 1 through 11. We began last week by looking at chapter 12, and we looked at the first eight verses. Well, today, we will be looking at verses 9 through 26. And so let's read it. And this is John 12, starting in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And as Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard about the son, that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, or excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, this most precious time, Lord, when your word is opened to us. Lord, may you, by your Spirit, give us a heart to, to see, to understand, to receive by faith what your word would have for us today. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, I don't think it was a coincidence that John gave us the story of Mary and Judas the way that he did in order to contrast the two different responses to Jesus. I say that because now, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, what we take from that will depend on the type of person we are. It's interesting that this section of Scripture is oftentimes referred to as the triumphal entry. In fact, some of you may have Bibles that has those very words as a header, triumphal, the triumphal entry. But looks can be deceiving. 
what may seem like a joyous and triumphant occasion as Jesus enters Jerusalem is actually a reflection of Israel's disbelief and hardness of heart. We don't hear it here in John, but Luke adds these words. In Luke 19, he says, And when he, that is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so although the people recognized the messianic implications of David's son entering into the royal city, many, if not most of these Jews, saw it merely as a political event with some religious significance rather than the moment when Jesus, the Prince of Peace and the Suffering Servant, would sacrifice himself for the sheep. While the day brought joy to Israel, as Scripture was being fulfilled and Jesus was following his Father's will for our salvation, the crowds actually failed to grasp the true significance of what they were witnessing. Israel's long-awaited moment had arrived, and yet the people lacked understanding. Now this event, this triumphal entry, is one of very few that are recorded in all four Gospels marking the transition in John's narrative from our Lord's messianic mission in the earlier chapters to his upper room discourse and passion in the later chapters. And as we have seen in chapters 11 and 12, which serves as sort of a, a hinge point in this gospel, connecting the first 10 chapters to the rest of the uh, later chapters, our Lord's messianic mission is rapidly approaching its conclusion. Through raising his dear friend Lazarus from the dead, Jesus proved himself to be Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. However, the response from the Sanhedrin to Jesus' miracle was to issue an arrest warrant, using it as a pretext for putting him to death. The Sanhedrin feared Jesus' growing influence and the possibility of Roman intervention, which would, could threaten their own authority. News of the Sanhedrin's order spread throughout Jerusalem as people were instructed to report any sightings or knowledge of Jesus. And despite the risk involved, Jesus boldly enters Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, fully aware that he would be arrested and executed. His obedience to his Father's will and the fulfillment of his mission were of utmost importance to him. In fact, the true meaning behind Jesus' entrance into the city on Palm Sunday became evident the night before at a dinner hosted by Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the home of Simon the leper. After the meal, if you recall, Jesus anointed, or Mary anointed Jesus' head, body, and feet with an expensive perfume called nard, worth a year's wages. She even wiped his dirty feet with her hair. And Judas objected, suggesting that the perfume could have been sold to help the poor. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. We noted the fact that John highlights the names of Mary and Judas. And by doing so, clue us in that John in particular wants us to consider these two people. In contrast, how they responded to Jesus. Both had heard from Jesus and seen his miracles, yet their responses were quite different. Mary, filled with gratitude and humility, pours expensive ointment over Jesus' feet and wipes his hair, wipes his feet with her hair. Her act of devotion symbolizes the deep love and recognition of Jesus' significance. She doesn't hold anything back. She doesn't worry about the opinions of others, but wholeheartedly worships and serves Christ. On the other hand, Judas complains about the wastefulness of Mary's gesture, suggesting that the ointment could have been sold to help the poor. However, it's revealed that Judas's concern for the poor is insincere, it's motivated by greed. His actions and motives expose his lack of true genuine faith and his failure to understand Jesus' significance. And so, as we noted last week, several lessons can be derived from this. One, that true discipleship goes beyond external appearances and requires true, genuine faith and commitment to Christ. We also see that Jesus sees and knows our hearts. We see that authentic faith leads to inward transformation and a desire to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And that individuals should examine their own hearts and value the genuineness of their devotion to Christ. And then we also see that hypocrisy and false discipleship are dangers to be aware of, both in ourselves and in others. And so in conclusion, the story of Mary and Judas calls us to reflect on the authenticity of our faith and the depth of our devotion to Christ. And that's just by way of personal application. But I also believe the story also does this. It prepares us for what's to come, as we see now in the passage before us today, before shadows. Though those present may not have fully grasped the significance of Jesus' words or his stern rebuke of Judas, his statement about Mary anointing him for the day of his burial foreshadowed the events that would unfold in the coming days. The next day, Jesus enters Jerusalem in great triumph. But by Friday afternoon of the Passover, he's dead. And as foretold, Mary anoints his body for burial. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, with a large number of people believing in him, the question looms, what's going to happen next? The Pharisees and high priest Caiaphas had made it clear what they wanted to do with Jesus. With the Passover approaching and pilgrims flocking to the city, everyone was concerned about what the Romans would do. As the military occupiers, the Romans expected the Sanhedrin to maintain peace. If not, Rome would intervene forcefully. And with these fears and realities in mind, something significant was about to unfold and everyone can sense it. Jesus was about to set in motion events that would forever change 
human history, if only you have the eyes to see it. Well, John's account begins in verse 12, stating that on the following day, a large crowd had gathered for the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, when, Jesus, or when John mentions a large crowd in Jerusalem, understand he means a large crowd. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, during one Passover celebration, an estimated 2.7 million people participated. Now, even if Josephus' numbers are inflated, which some think, the fact remains that Jerusalem was packed with pilgrims during the annual Passover. And this year was no exception. News had spread quickly from pilgrims who saw Jesus on the road from Bethany to, to Jerusalem, despite the possibility of arrest. Excitement grew as people from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas poured out to witness Jesus' arrival. They wanted to be part of this momentous event, the most memorial in recent Jewish history. Thus, as Jesus approached the royal city, a spontaneous pro uh, procession formed, quickly becoming a monumental occasion. Verse 13 describes the scene. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Two centuries before Christ, Judas and Simon Maccabeus had driven the Syrian forces out of Israel. And their victory was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches, which also had been prominent at the earlier rededication of the temple. Thus understand that palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism and a victory over their enemies. The crowd was hopeful that Jesus was coming to be the messianic liberator who would free them from Rome's domination. The crowd's chants were filled with messianic imagery and verses associated with David's kingship from the Old Testament. Hosanna means give us salvation. And it's found in Psalm 118.25 where it states, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Jesus was indeed entering Jerusalem to offer God's people the gift of salvation. But unfortunately, the crowds were misguided. Perceiving Jesus as a political figure like David, rather than seeing him as the savior from sin, they were excited about the wrong thing. The crowd also chanted Psalm 118, verse 26, which referred to the blessings received by those seeking forgiveness of sins and offering prayers at the Jerusalem temple. And then they added the phrase, even to the king of Israel seeing Jesus as David's true successor. This entire scene was one of spontaneous celebration and excitement, grounded in the messianic expectation of Israel having a king once again. However, understand that the people failed to grasp that Jesus' purpose for entering the city was to bring salvation. The crowd may have blessed Jesus, but they overlooked the fact that it was Jesus who pronounced God's blessing upon those who worshiped at the temple. Jesus was not merely a political successor to David. 
He was David's greater son and Lord. And while the crowd sang Psalm 118, they disregarded the opening verse of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The crowd rightly connected Jesus to David, acknowledging his right to the throne of Israel, which was then held by the Roman-appointed Herod. However, Jesus' salvation was not about liberating Israel from Roman occupation, nor was he aiming to replace the Sanhedrin with his own political rule. The people had yet to understand that Jesus would be a different kind of king than the one that they had desired and expected. On this day, the crowds loved Jesus, singing messianic songs, waving palm branches, and demonstrating their patriotism. They lined the road, cheering, chanting, and singing. However, when they discovered the true nature of Jesus' kingship and that he had come to conquer a great, greater enemy than Rome, these same crowds would quickly turn against him. Many who cheered for him on Palm Sunday would later be found in Pilate's Hall on Friday morning shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Beloved, the desperation of the people of Israel and their failure to understand themselves as fallen, sinful, rebellious creatures blinded them to the truth of who Jesus is. And then according to verses 14 and 15, Jesus finds a young donkey and sits on it, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The image of a king riding a war horse adorned with symbols of royalty and conquest is what the people expected. However, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a young donkey's colt. He has not come to save Israel from Rome through military means. Instead, he comes as the Prince of Peace, fulfilling ancient prophecy. The next verse in Zechariah 9 verse 10 speaks of a worldwide reign of David's royal son. And it goes on to note that the Messianic king will open a fountain of blood in Jerusalem, freeing the people from the guilt and power of sin. It reads, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Beloved, this is the true meaning of this scripture. That Jesus brings the salvation promised in these verses that the people were singing, and yet these people did not fully understand it. Two significant events that explain what Jesus is doing are lost on the crowds that day. 
As we already noted, the previous night, Mary anointed Jesus for his burial and death. And she will do so again when she prepares his body for burial. Jesus will fulfill his messianic mission by dying and shedding his blood for the sins of his people. And additionally, the timing of Jesus' entrance into the city is crucial. As we noted last week, verse 1 of chapter 12 states that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Beloved, Jesus is not there to confront the Pharisees or disrupt the Passover. Jesus enters Jerusalem as Israel's true Passover lamb, celebrating and fulfilling the Passover. He is the sinless sacrificial lamb and the perfect high priest who offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And it's through his death and resurrection, Jesus will save his people. And so, although the crowd longs for the defeat of Rome and sings Hosanna, they do not grasp the true meaning of it all. You know, it's important to understand the context and the desperation of the people of Israel. They suffered under Roman military occupation, despising the Roman banners, proclaiming Caesar as God. They hoped Jesus would rescue them from this miserable situation and restore their nation's greatness. However, Jesus came to address a deeper issue. He came to address the guilt the power, and the bondage of sin. Understand something, beloved. Rome and the corrupt Pharisees are symptoms of a fallen race that is estranged from God. And Jesus came to deal with the root cause, the root problem, and that is the sinful, rebellious hearts of us all. As John recounts these events years later, he explains that even the disciples did not initially understand the full significance of what Jesus was doing. It is only after Jesus was glorified through his death and resurrection that they remembered and realized the fulfillment of these prophecies. On the day Jesus entered Jerusalem, the expectation among everyone was that Israel's long-awaited moment had finally arrived. But the significance of the cross and the resurrection was far from their minds on that day. And looking back, John now understands the true meaning of this triumphal entry. And then there's the jealousy that rises among the crowd. The people who had witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead continued to testify about it, and many believed in Jesus because of this sign. There were two groups present on the road from Bethany to Jerusalem. One group consisted of those who had known Lazarus personally and had witnessed his resurrection. And the other group comprised people from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas who had heard about Jesus and Lazarus. And upon hearing that Jesus was coming, they rushed out of the city to see the man who, would raise, who could raise the dead. And the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin aware of this popular support, realized that their plan to arrest and kill Jesus would be put on hold for now. So in their frustration, the Pharisees lamented that they were gaining nothing. 
and it seemed as if the whole world now was following Jesus. They were angered by Jesus' popularity, fearing both the loss of their own authority and potential Roman intervention. And so they would wait for another opportunity to arrest Jesus. And that opportunity would be provided by one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot. In verses 20 through 26, John then recounts the visit of a group of Greeks who wished to see Jesus. Now these Greeks may have been Greek-speaking Jews or Gentile converts to Judaism, known as God-fearers. Intrigued by the accounts of Lazarus' resurrection and possibly witnessing Jesus' cleansing of the temple, they approached the disciples to arrange a meeting with Jesus. And Jesus responds to the request by declaring that the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Now this is a significant statement as Jesus had always referred to his hour as a future event. It is ironic that while the people of Jerusalem, representing all of Israel, embraced Jesus as their Davidic king, that they are about to reject him as their Messiah and crucify him. Meanwhile, Jesus chooses to reveal the nearing end of his messianic mission to these Gentile visitors. And in doing so, Jesus uses the analogy of a grain of wheat that must fall to the earth and die to bear much fruit. He teaches that those who love their lives will lose them, but those who hate their lives in this world will keep them for eternal life. This echoes his words in Mark 8, verses 34 through 38, wherein he states, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. By losing their lives and embracing the eternal life offered by Christ, believers will be honored by the Father just as Jesus is honored. Jesus explains that he is about to fulfill all righteousness, something no one else can do. And by following Jesus and receiving new life through faith in him, believers must also be willing to lose their lives. This self-sacrifice leads to the eternal life that Jesus offers. If they choose to cling to their earthly lives, they will be like Israel on Palm Sunday, blinded to the truth, unfolding before their very eyes. And so in summary, On Palm Sunday, the king of Israel arrived among his people. And although they celebrated with great joy, they missed the true significance of it all. This king conquers through his death and will be raised for the justification of his people. And one day, this king is going to come back again. 
And so as we await the return of this king, i got to ask you something similar to what I asked last week. Which person are you? Mary or Judas? Are you one of those who recognizes the true significance of Christ and what he came to do? Or are you one who fails to grasp the significance of it due to your own blindness and your own agenda and your own love of sin? This passage before us today highlights the importance of not following Jesus solely for the temporary benefits we might expect to receive. The crowd who greeted Jesus during the triumphal entry, carrying palm branches, which symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory over enemies, hoped that Jesus would liberate them from Roman rule. Their cry of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, reflected their desire for salvation in recognition of Jesus as their messianic king. However, their faith was driven by their anticipation of temporal advantages and the miracles they witnessed, such as Lazarus' resurrection. Again, even the disciples shared this perspective until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension when they understood the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Beloved, this passage before us today cautions us against basing our faith solely on expectations of things such as financial prosperity or good health or temporal benefits. And instead, recognizing the true significance of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Likewise, to have a steadfast faith in Jesus, it is essential that we follow him based on his true identity as God's Messiah and King rather than seeking temporary benefits. The fulfillment of prophecies served as evidence of Jesus' role as God's chosen Messiah and King. The mention of Psalm 118, which refers to the blessed one coming in the name of the Lord, and Zechariah 9.9, which speaks of the humble king arriving on the donkey, evidences Jesus' messianic and kingly identity. So the lesson to be gleaned from the triumphal entry is to follow Jesus for who he truly is rather than seeking worldly gain. And while he offers forgiveness and eternal life, it is important to acknowledge that hardships and persecution may occupy this journey. However, the reassurance remains that Jesus, even in his death, maintained complete control and willingly fulfilled God's purpose. Furthermore, we learn in John 12, 19, the Pharisees expressed frustration as they witnessed the crowds embracing Jesus during his entry into Jerusalem. They remarked that their attempts to get rid of him have failed as it seems everyone is following him. However, John employs irony to highlight that while the Jewish leaders initially rejoiced in their temporary victory, Jesus ultimately triumphed by raising from the dead. By the time John wrote this gospel, it had spread throughout the whole world, reaching both Jews and Gentiles. This foreshadows the scene described in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, where a multitude from every nation and language stands before the throne, holding palm branches and proclaiming salvation to God and the Lamb. This scene represents the ultimate triumph of Jesus. And so John here is emphasizing 
that opposing Jesus may appear successful in the short term. But in the long run, he's going to prevail. And those who have not yielded their lives to him will suffer defeat. The crucifixion orchestrated by the Jewish leaders did not signal the end, but rather the beginning of Jesus' mediatorial eternal reign. So, in conclusion, see that the primary reason to follow Jesus is not to seek specific temporal benefits, such as a godly spouse or healing in relationships or emotional wounds, While Jesus can provide those things, the ultimate motivation for following him should be based on his identity as God's anointed Messiah, the rightful king over every aspect of life. He died for our sins, conquered death through his resurrection, and he will return in power and glory. And regardless of the challenges we face, whether tribulation, distress, persecution, poverty, health issues, or even death itself, we can overwhelmingly conquer through our faith in him. Then having said that, there's one other point of application, the thing we can draw from this. I'm kind of doing this on the fly because I just thought of it as I was driving church. (laughs) I'm like, why did I not think of this earlier? But If you recall, last week, We made the contrast between Mary and Judas. That Jesus, if you remember his response to Judas and how he rebuked Judas, he said, for the poor you will always have with me, have with you, but you will not always have me. And so we noted from that last week, it would be wrong to take away from that that Jesus is presenting to us some sort of either-or scenario. Right? Jesus is not saying to us, take your pit, either take care of the poor or worship Christ. That wasn't the point. The point was one of priority. And we know that because Jesus himself commanded Israel in Deuteronomy to take care of the poor among us. So Jesus obviously is not warring with himself. He's not contradicting himself. It's not an either or. The point is, when you take care of the poor, you're to do so within the context of a proper and right recognition of Christ, within proper worship. It's not an either-or, it's a priority issue. But we have a similar parallel here in our text today, and this is why I said I think it foreshadows, I think Mary and Judas foreshadows what we see with this crowd. What we saw on a small scale with those two, we're now seeing on a much larger scale. Here you have this same Judas-type mentality. We're all worried about what's going on with our nation. And the oppression and the Romans and all the rest of it. And in making that their priority and focus, they they were completely blinded to the true significance of what Christ came to do. And again, do not get me wrong. I'm not saying it's an either or. I've read many commentators this week, preachers, who they, when they look at how the crowd responded 
to Jesus and their political aspirations and failure to recognize who Jesus is, they then conclude from that that as Christians we should not be involved politically because that's wrong and that's misguided, it's misfocused. I don't think that's correct any more than I think it's correct to say that we shouldn't take care of the poor. Again, I think the point is it's one of priority. Get your priorities straight. As JP was waxing eloquently on the, the Ten Commandments earlier, you notice it's not, a, it's not the point of, here's the first table of the law, love God, and here's the second table of the law, love your neighbor. Now, take your pick. Which one do you want? It's not the point. It's a unified whole. And even, even in the commandments of loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing that in obedience to God. You can never strip God from any of it. So let that be a lesson to us here with this crowd. There's two extremes that I can see we can go to. One extreme is to be just completely passive and say, well, it doesn't matter that we're being oppressed. It doesn't matter what the idiots in Washington, D.C. are doing. It doesn't matter that they continually breaking the law and taxing us to death and all the rest of it. That's not the route to go. Of course it matters. Of course it's important. But don't get so honed in on that, so focused on that, that that becomes your priority. That becomes the guiding principle, if you will, of everything. Because what will happen is you will eventually lose sight of what the root cause and issue is of all of it. And that's our sin, our rebellion. When's the last time you heard a conservative radio host present the gospel? When's the last time you heard a conservative radio host talk about law and liberty within the context of God's Ten Commandments? I don't know that I've ever heard it. Maybe, well, maybe from Steve Dace, possibly. A lot of conservatives today don't even think it's binding on us. Law and liberty then becomes, hey, government, leave us alone. Let us do whatever we want. And again, as JP just pointed out, that's not Bible. That's not Christianity. True law or excuse me, true liberty and true freedom is to be understood in the context of God's word, God's law. I love this quote from uh, Robert Latham. He says, by giving us his law, that is the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, God has set us free from bondage to human opinions. It is a charter for Christian liberty. That is why the Confessions chapter on the law of God is followed directly by one on Christian liberty. Bound in conscience to God's law, we are free from human dictates when they conflict with it or seek to usurp it. In short, the law defines for us what is pleasing to God and what is sin. It is a map explaining to us how our sanctification is to take shape. Consequently, Paul writes that living according to the Spirit entails the just requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 1 through 8. We are set free from the law of sin and death 
in order to obey God. Did you catch that? Jesus didn't die to set us free from the law. He came to set us free from the law of sin and death, the penalty of the law. And then Latham, uh, Latham goes on, the Spirit uses the law for that purpose. We neglect it to our eternal peril. It marks the path of life. All other ways are ways of death. So again, in closing, I'll just simply ask you again, who are you today? Mary or Judas? Who are you today? Are you of those that recognize the true significance of what Christ came to do? Or are you of this crowd? This crowd that on the outward appearance appears to have it right, to understand it, but in reality they're blind to the truth of the gospel because they're seeking their hope and everything in this things of this world, politics and all the rest of it. Well, it's very dangerous to go down that route. And so I ask you today to examine your life, examine your heart, examine what your motivation is for coming to church, for taking of sacraments. Examine what your motivation is for naming the name of Christ on your lips. I think this passage today, along with the story of Mary and Judas provided ample warning to us of the dangers of losing sight, of truly understanding the significance of Christ and what he's done. Let's pray.